Welcome to our first eMultiple Sclerosis Review Podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter issue, Personalizing DMT Regimens and the Risks of Medication Non-Adherence. With us today are that issue's authors, from the MS Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Dr. Arun Venkatesan, Associate Professor of Neurology, and Dr. Scott Newsom, Assistant Professor of Neurology. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This program is supported by educational grants from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Learning objectives for this program include identifying when patients with MS should start or switch disease-modifying therapies, recognizing the important clinical and paraclinical factors of disease activity in MS, and describing the factors that play a role in non-adherence to MS treatment. Dr. Newsom has indicated that he has served as a consultant and advisor to Biogen, Genzyme, and Novartis, and that he has received grant and or research funding from Biogen and Novartis. Dr. Venkatesan has indicated that he has served as a consultant and advisor to Metamune. The faculty have indicated that there will be references to unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or products in today's discussion, specifically rituximab, teclizumab, acrolizumab, and antilingotherapies. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of eMultiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Venkatesan, Dr. Newsom, thank you both for joining us today. Really glad to be here, Bob. Yes, thank you, Bob. We look forward to this program. Doctors, our focus today is on personalizing DMT therapies for patients with MS and how patient non-adherence to DMT regimens can affect outcomes. Uh, so start us out, Dr. Venkatesan, uh, with a patient scenario, if you would, please. So I wanted to talk about a case of a young woman, she's 23 years old, who presented with several days of right eye pain with horizontal eye movements, along with some blurring of the right eye. She had not had any previous neurological symptoms and reported no relevant other medical or family history. And on examination, she was found to have a right afferent pupillary defect and decreased visual acuity in the right eye. Her visual acuity was 20 over 200, along with some hyperreflexia in the extremities that was asymmetric. So a brain MRI was ordered, and it demonstrated two T2 hyperintense lesions. One was in the periventricular area, and one was juxtacortical. In addition, she was noted to have enhancement of the right optic nerve on MRI. She underwent some serologies that included ANA, ESR, CRP, SSA, SSB, vitamin B12, TSH, and Lyme, and all of these were negative or unremarkable. Dr. Newsom, your impression of this patient, and what would determine your decision to start disease-modifying therapy? This particular patient is a very common patient that we see in the clinic and who we would refer to as having clinically isolated syndrome. The purest definition for clinically isolated syndrome is an initial neurological episode that occurs within the central nervous system that is often associated with inflammation and demyelination. CIS is synonymous with the first attack of multiple sclerosis, which is extremely important because studies have shown in this group of patients that the earlier we can get them onto these modifying therapies, the better they will fare over the long haul. Some of the decision-making in whether we start someone on a disease-modifying therapy with CIS is whether they're classified as low-risk or high-risk clinically isolated syndrome. And what that means is really what the MRI is demonstrating. So in this particular patient, not only did she have a right optic nerve that was enhancing, which was causing her symptoms, but she also had two hyperintense lesions that were in regions of the brain that are typical for a demyelinating disease and specifically multiple sclerosis. So 
this particular patient, in my mind, would be categorized as high-risk CIS. And low-risk CIS? Low-risk CIS is an individual who would present similarly to this patient with a normal brain MRI. And the differences between the two are very important to differentiate because of treatment. And so for this particular patient, given that she's high risk for going on to develop clinically definite multiple sclerosis and untreated could result in disability, we would strongly consider initiating a disease-modifying therapy versus a patient who's low risk. We may do the watchful waiting approach, repeat MRIs over time, and if there's new lesions that show up or she or he has a clinical attack, then we would likely start them on a disease-modifying therapy. So in the patient you just described... With this particular patient, I personally would pursue a disease-modifying therapy because she is high-risk CIS. Eventually, she will go on to develop a clinical attack or new MRI lesions that will confirm that she has clinically definite MS. And leveraging some of the CIS treatment studies, we know that getting people on treatment earlier will help prevent them from converting to clinically definite MS and then also decrease disability over time, as we've seen in the clinic. Uh, Dr. Venkatesan, if a disease-modifying therapy is started in this patient, which DMT agent would you choose and why would you choose it? In a situation like this, the patient clearly does have CIS, and the data really does suggest that early initiation of treatment would likely be beneficial. In terms of the choice of agents, there have been several double-blind placebo-controlled trials in CIS that have demonstrated a reduced risk of conversion to clinically definite MS. The interferons, clitoramoracetate, teraflunamide as well have been demonstrated to reduce this risk of conversion. And several of the interferons as well as glitiramer have been FDA approved specifically for CIS. So I think in a situation like this, one of those platform injectables would be a very reasonable option to begin with. Switching disease-modifying therapies. Uh, Dr. Newsom, what would prompt you to do that in this patient? So with this particular patient, given her low burden of disease from the start, one may consider not being an early switcher unless there is evidence of another relapse that she doesn't recover well from, or you notice that she's starting to have frequent relapses in a very short time frame, or her next relapse that she has ends up targeting an eloquent area of the nervous system like the spinal cord, then one would certainly want to switch therapies. And when we are discussing switching therapies with all the current available treatments that we have, I just want to make this point is that you need to have at least six months of continuous treatment on any of these agents before you can really say that someone's a treatment failure. Now, of course, that doesn't include individuals that are having poor tolerability to the medication. For example, if someone has injection site reactions or they're on a medication that's being taken more than once a day and they're forgetting their second pill during the day and they're being non-adherent to the medication, then that certainly is, uh, in my mind, a treatment failure because of adherence and poor tolerability. If we look at the clinical and the paraclinical disease markers, switching therapies sooner than later makes sense in sort of the more aggressive phenotypes of MS. And there have been a number of studies that have shown that if you're a male gender, older age at onset, African-American, you have involved like the spine, frequent relapses from the beginning, poor recovery from relapses, high lesion burden on MRI, multiple spinal cord lesions. These would be key factors in determining we need to really watch this person closely and have a low threshold to switch.
So I'm curious with Arun if there are other factors one should consider if we're going to switch therapies. Thanks, Scott. So I think many of the factors that you referred to really fit nicely into a framework that I like to think about when I think about reasons to switch disease-modifying therapies. Reasons could include factors surrounding efficacy. They could include factors surrounding safety. They could include patient-related factors, as you mentioned, difficulty with adherence and so on. Or there could be payer-related factors that might necessitate a change in treatment. And one of the other major pieces to consider is patient preference and the need to treat each patient as an individual. This is underscored by one of the manuscripts that we have included in our newsletter. It's the one by Salter et al. entitled Patient Perspectives on Switching Disease-Modifying Therapies in the Narcoms Registry. I just really wanted to highlight one of these factors, safety, and in particular, there is some interesting data coming out in terms of safety factors for some of the newer agents. And I wanted to specifically, just very briefly, talk about dimethyl fumarate and its association with leukopenia and lymphopenia. There is some suggestion that patients who have prolonged leukopenia or lymphopenia might be at risk for opportunistic infections, such as PML. And the reason I say that is that there's been one case reported in the literature and Another one that I think many of us have just heard about, in which patients treated with medication had this prolonged low white blood cell count and developed progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. And so that's just one example of safety factors and safety concerns that we need to consider. We've certainly laid out a number of the safety concerns for some of the newer agents in the newsletter as well. Thank you, doctors, for that case and that discussion. And we'll return with Dr. Scott Newsom and Dr. Arun Venkatesan from the Johns Hopkins MS Center in just a moment. Hello, this is Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. If you found today's program on iTunes or on the web, please be sure to subscribe. This podcast is part of Johns Hopkins E-Multiple Sclerosis Review, an educational program providing monthly activities certified for CME credit. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review provides expert commentary and useful practice information for clinicians treating patients with multiple sclerosis. For additional information or to subscribe to receive our newsletters and podcasts without charge, please visit www.emultiplesclerosisreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this E-Multiple Sclerosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guests are Dr. Scott Newsom and Dr. Arun Venkatesan from the MS Center at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And our topic is personalizing DMT therapies and the risks of medication non-adherence. What I'd like to do, doctors, is continue with the same patient we've been discussing. 23-year-old female, she was originally diagnosed as high-risk CIS, and she was started on a DMT. Uh, Dr. Venkatesan, give us a follow-up on this patient, if you would, please. I'd be glad to. So the patient initially did well and followed up with her clinician regularly. However, three years later, she had a partial attack of transverse myelitis that resulted in a foot drop and poor penmanship, as well as some dysfunction of her bladder. This was not in the setting of a preceding or current infectious trigger. And her MRI revealed a new enhancing lesion in the cervical spine with otherwise stable lesion load. When asked, she reported strict compliance with her disease-modifying therapies. Dr. Newsom, is this patient now considered to have MS? 
This patient would fulfill the revised McDonald criteria for making a diagnosis of clinical definite multiple sclerosis, and the reason being is she now fulfills both separation in time and space for a clinical attack and a new lesion on MRI. And so yes, she does have multiple sclerosis. Now with the revised criteria, if someone presents with clinically isolated syndrome, we can actually make a definitive diagnosis of MS based on one clinical attack in one brain MRI or spine MRI. If someone has an asymptomatic enhancing lesion that's not in the area that's causing the person's isolated symptom or syndrome, then with the revised criteria, we can say this person has multiple sclerosis. Of course, that's barring if we've ruled out the mimickers, which why I mentioned that it speaks to the point that getting people on treatment earlier, the data suggests that people may do better long-term. Does she need at this point to switch therapies? This is a bit tricky because we know that the current therapies we have are not cures. And depending on the therapy that one is on, some are more effective than others. If someone is put on a disease-modifying therapy and they don't have an attack for three to five years, maybe we don't necessarily need to switch them and just have a lower threshold to switch them on their next clinical attack or if there is breakthrough disease activity on MRI that's asymptomatic. For this particular person, though, given the location of the clinical attack, the spinal cord, that makes me quite nervous moving forward that if we don't switch this individual to potentially a more effective therapy, then she has another attack to the spinal cord that could leave her with disability. My personal bias for this particular patient, especially since we have more than 10 FDA-approved therapies, is likely to switch her to a different disease-modifying therapy. How would you identify disease progression, and what would determine actual treatment failure? I've touched upon already some of the important clinical and paraclinical factors that help us stratify someone's risk of having a more aggressive MS phenotype. And I generally will think of these same factors when someone presents possibility of having disease progression or treatment failure. So for example, if someone is on a disease-modifying therapy, they have a transverse myelitis attack that they have not recovered well from. Now they have a foot drop. That, in my mind, could be a treatment failure based on, of course, whether they're adherent to the drug. There are a number of groups that have tried to eloquently define what suboptimal treatment response is, and I will pass it over to Arun to speak to that. Thank you, Scott. So just a few words about suboptimal treatment response. This is tough trying to define this. MS is a disease that is highly variable in terms of its clinical course as well as its disease progression. And monitoring of disease activity is not so simple. So it can be really difficult to try to define suboptimal treatment responses. Having said that, there have been a number of experts who have tried, and in fact, there is a consensus statement that was published a few years ago in an article whose first author was Dr. Coyle, C-O-Y-L-E, in multiple sclerosis, that tried to identify what was consistent with suboptimal response. What they came to is that if there was a relapse at a year after treatment, and in particular, if there was a second relapse while on treatment, that would certainly prompt evaluation for a possible suboptimal response. In addition, there were MRI findings that could prompt 
consideration, and that would include what they considered to be a significant increase in T2 lesion load of 20 to 30 percent, or the development of several new enhancing lesions while on treatment. Those, again, could be considered markers of suboptimal response. And then finally, in terms of progression, the consensus participants really felt that a one-point-per-year increase on the EDSS would be an appropriate signal for treatment failure as well. I agree, Arun, that it's very challenging to discern what is suboptimal treatment response. More recently, at one of the large MS conferences, there was a survey that went out looking at the consensus of U.S. neurologists in seeing their practice patterns in that study. They looked at individuals from a practitioner point of view threshold to recommend switching therapy. And there was a wide consensus that if an individual patient had two or more new T2 lesions or one or more new adalinium-enhancing lesions one year out from starting a treatment, that the majority of practitioners would recommend switching. I think MRI in the past was underutilized for monitoring treatment response and following patients over time. I think MRI is a very sensitive tool to help us with defining whether someone has a treatment response or suboptimal treatment. I want to note to our listeners that the topic of using MRI, not only in making the diagnosis of MS, but also in following patients over time to determine medication response, that's going to be the focus of an upcoming issue of e-multiple sclerosis review. Uh, so, doctors, uh, I'd like to turn our discussion now to medication adherence. Uh, Dr. Newsom, what does the evidence show about patients not complying with their prescribed DMT regimens? So there have been several large disease-modifying therapy adherence studies over the years that have looked at adherence questions, really in reference to the injectable therapies. Specifically, there are three studies that I'm aware of that looked at this question, and it's Treadwell and colleagues, Devonshire and colleagues, and Arayo and colleagues, with very large sample sizes on the order of lowest being in the 200s and highest being almost 3,000 patients. And what these studies showed was that anywhere between 18 to 39% of patients were non-adherent, which has huge implications for a patient. We've all seen the consequences of non-adherence to a medication. Some of those consequences include relapses and sometimes more severe relapses because the therapies that we have can help not only prevent relapses, but if a relapse occurs, there's an observation that the severity of a relapse is not as severe. New lesions on MRI can form, which can translate into long-term disability. So there are huge implications for non-adherence. MS is analogous to hypertension and diabetes in terms of non-adherence to treatment, because in those conditions, if someone is not adherent to their medications, the end consequence could be a stroke, could be a heart attack, kidney disease. And so it's very important. And I'd like to ask Arun, are there any studies out there that can help us understand better what the impacts of adherence is in clinical and economic domains? Sure, Scott. I'd be glad to speak to that. Just before I do that, I wanted to build on what you're mentioning about MS being analogous to some of these other chronic conditions, such as hypertension or diabetes. I think the other analogy there is that patients who are not adherent to medications may not immediately feel the consequences of that non-adherence and that it may take some time for serious clinical manifestations to arise as a result of non-adherence. And I think we can say the same about MS. I did want to highlight one particular study published by Tan and colleagues a few years ago that looked at 
the impact of adherence to disease-modifying therapies in MS. The way that they went about doing this was to use an administrative claims database to identify about 2,500 patients with MS. They were able to utilize some of the data in that database to estimate the degree of adherence of patients. And and they use something called the medication possession ratio. It's a metric that essentially can be used to estimate adherence. I don't want to get into the details of that here. But suffice it to say that they found a very clear correlation between adherence to DMTs and several clinical outcomes. First of all, they found that compared to the non-adherent group, that those who were adherent were much less likely to have MS-related inpatient hospitalization. The odds ratio was about 0.63 if you were adherent. The second major finding was that relapses were also significantly decreased in those who were adherent. So the odds ratio there was 0.71. These are very important findings, and I think that they clearly speak to the need for adherence to disease-modifying therapies in this chronic condition. I want to remind our listeners that links to the studies our doctors have been mentioning are available in the transcript version of this podcast. Uh, To continue, Dr. Newsom, what are some of the most common reasons for non-adherence among patients on DMTs? One of the more common things that I hear, and there are a number of studies that have supported this, is forgetting to take the medication. There have been a number of studies that have shown not just in MS, but other disease states, that the more frequent the medication administration is, the higher the non-adherence rate is. And so that often is one of the causes of that. With respect to injectable therapies, because there still are a lot of people on injectable therapies, injection site reactions seems to be one of the main culprits for non-adherence. One other point that I like to mention is a lack of perceived benefit. This probably trumps many of the other things that I've already mentioned, and it goes back to educating patients about what these therapies are there for. The therapies that we currently have are not going to necessarily improve someone's function. They're preventative agents. So we need to be very clear to patients up front that the point of these therapies is to prevent new things from happening. They're not going to make your numbness and tingling better. If we're upfront with patients and honest how these therapies are supposed to work, at least in my own practice, I've seen that improve adherence. Dr. Venkatesan, your thoughts? I just wanted to speak very briefly about the importance of education of patients. And this is, I think, really highlighted by a nice study that looked at patients with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis who had been receiving immunomodulatory therapy for three or more months. It turns out that those who considered themselves well-informed about their disease and about treatments for the disease were much more likely to adhere to their regimen. This issue of communication between the physician and the patient and making sure that everybody's on the same page about expectations of the medications is absolutely crucial for adherence. Uh, One final question, doctors. Patients who have failed or can't tolerate any of the currently available DMTs What can you tell us about other potential and emerging treatment options? Dr. Newsom? There, unfortunately, are a group of individuals that will fail or not tolerate the majority of the therapies that we have currently that are FDA-approved. And given the patient demographics and the disease severity in those individuals, we will often utilize uh, therapies that more broadly suppress the immune system, including B-cell monoclonal antibodies like rituximab, 
But if someone has really failed therapies, then looking into clinical trials, there's a number of stem cell therapies that are being done even here in the U.S. And so there are more options available outside of the current FDA-approved therapies. And Scott, I'd like to mention a couple of other treatments that are in the pipeline at this point. So I'll be brief about this, but one is teclizumab, and that is a humanized monoclonal antibody against CD25, which is expressed on immune cells. And the mechanisms of teclizumab are incompletely understood, but at least one of the mechanisms is via expansion of a natural killer cell population that seems to provide efficacy for this drug in the setting of MS. There have been a couple of phase two studies and a phase three study now that have demonstrated efficacy in terms of reducing relapses and on MRI measures. Another treatment that I wanted to mention was ocrelizumab. This is a humanized monoclonal antibody against CD20, so similar to rituximab. It depletes circulating B cells. It may be safer and less immunogenic than rituximab, but like rituximab, it does appear to reduce both clinical and radiological measures of disease in MS. And then finally, I wanted to mention antilingotherapy. This is quite exciting and targets a completely different pathway than many of these immune modulatory agents. The pathway targeted here is remyelination. Lingo 1 is a really key negative regulator of differentiation of oligodendrocytes and of myelination. It turns out that if you overexpress lingo, that oligodendrocyte differentiation and myelination is inhibited. And if you interfere with lingo-1 activity, then the converse occurs. So oligodendrocyte differentiation and myelination is enhanced. This has been shown in animal models, in cell culture, and in experimental autoimmune encephalitis, one of the prominent animal models for multiple sclerosis, where if you block lingo function, you can promote functional recovery in EAE. You can improve axonal integrity. You can improve axonal myelination. This has really spawned a lot of interest in these types of approaches in MS. There is now a study called the RENEW study looking at the efficacy of anti-lingo-1 antibody in patients with a first episode of acute optic neuritis. The initial reported results really do look promising in terms of visual function and some other secondary endpoints of visual measures in the setting of anti-lingo therapy. So there's going to be a lot of excitement about the possibility of utilizing such approaches in MS. Doctors, I want to thank you for today's discussion. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing the key points of today's podcast in light of our learning objectives. Uh, so to begin, uh, Dr. Newsom, identifying when patients with MS should start or switch disease-modifying therapies. Without a doubt, high-risk clinically isolated syndrome and clinically definite multiple sclerosis of the relapsing phenotype should start on a disease-modifying therapy. This is really based on not only our experience in the clinic, but clinical trial data supports this. And starting therapy earlier than later does seem to help impact preventing disability, also relapses. With respect to switching therapies, you have to look at an individual person if they are recovering poorly from an attack or if there's a number of new lesions on MRI despite being adherent to a medication, then one needs to consider switching therapies. Of course, if someone is poorly tolerating a therapy because of a side effect or they're just not adherent for reasons that are not clear, then that would be a reason to switch therapies. 
And our second learning objective, recognizing the clinical and paraclinical factors that determine disease activity in MS. When we look at the clinical factors of disease activity, we're referencing primarily relapses. And specifically, what is the severity of someone's relapse? Where the location of the attack ensues? Does an individual recover from a particular relapse? And how often are these relapses occurring? Are they occurring once every few years? Or is it an individual who's having multiple relapses even within the same year? Most of the paraclinical factors surround imaging and specifically MRI. The first thing we're thinking when we see a person is what is their lesion burden at presentation? Also, are there lesions that are in eloquent areas of the nervous system like the spinal cord? Why we look at the clinical and paraclinical factors, especially up front in someone who has multiple sclerosis, is it can direct how we treat a patient. How aggressive are we going to be with an individual based on these factors? The higher the lesion burden, the more severe the relapse with poor recovery. I'm thinking from the get-go, we need to be aggressive and maybe go into a more potent therapy from the start. Reason being is down the line, we want to prevent disability from accruing. And finally, the factors that might play a role in patient non-adherence to MS treatment. There are a number of factors that do play a role in non-adherence, some of which are driven by the patient. And some of those factors could include just forgetting to take a medication or a patient's lack of perceived benefit for an individual medication. If someone's on an injectable therapy, maybe they're having adverse injection site reactions that are not pleasant, and so they decide to stop. The important thing here from a provider perspective is really to try to identify an individual's roadblocks to their adherence. Once you can identify one or two factors, whatever it may be, then you can help address the adherence issue. And this really speaks to the strength of the physician-patient relationship. The more education they can provide to the patient and the expectations of the treatment moving forward, the improved adherence will be. I have had personal experiences where the more time that I've spent with a patient educating them, they seem to do much better over the long haul with adherence. And we know from studies that were presented today that when an individual adheres to their medication, that there are improved outcomes, less relapses, less severe relapses, less hospitalizations, and overall medical costs. Dr. Arun Venkatesan, Dr. Scott Newsom, thank you both for participating in this e-multiple sclerosis review podcast. So glad to participate. Thank you, Bob. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.emultiplesclerosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Multiple Sclerosis Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with multiple sclerosis. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive e-multiple sclerosis review via email, please go to our website, 
www.emultiplesclerosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.